This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. This piece has terrified even the best pianists. Yeah, there's a reason it's considered the Mount Everest of piano concertos. The story of this piece became the heart of a movie called Shine about a gifted young pianist, David Helfgott. He's incredibly gifted, but he suffers from schizophrenia. And there's a scene where Helfgott's piano teacher finds out that young David was learning how to play a particular piano concerto. The Rack 3, it's a monster. Tame it or it will swallow you whole. (laughs) (laughs) But there's good reason to be terrified of this piece. It is a monster, and this is one of those pieces where it really helps to have those monster-sized hands that Rachmaninoff had. So Rachmaninoff ended up making this piece so difficult that even the pianist that he dedicated it to, whom Rachmaninoff thought was the greatest pianist in the world named Joseph Hoffman, even Joseph Hoffman said, ah, it's not for me, and he never played it. (laughs) Well, compared to his lush, romantic, pull-on-your-heartstrings second piano concerto, this is a whole new kind of passionate. This is battle music. The darker side of Rachmaninoff's personality, I think, really starts to dominate these new compositions as the world around him begins to collapse. This is music born in wartime. And this is where we begin Chapter 6 of the Great Composer series on Rachmaninoff from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. I'm host Carla Walker, along with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill in the CPR Performance Studio. And picking up from last episode, Rachmaninoff's golden decade continues. He's just written his glorious Symphony No. 2. But even before he wrote his heart-on-your-sleeve symphony, Scott, there is darkness brewing in Rachmaninoff's life. The Russia that Rachmaninoff knows and loves is crumbling. Russians are rising up against the ruling class, and the thousand-year-old tradition of a ruling Tsarist family is threatened. Electricity is cut off. The newspapers stop printing. Hundreds of demonstrators are shot and killed in front of the Tsar's palace on what is known as Bloody Sunday. The 1905 Russian Revolution shakes Rachmaninoff to the core. And he loved Russia. The smell of the soil, the endless fields of wheat, the people he loved so deeply. But the violence and anarchy he witnessed, he really couldn't cope with it. And his despair and contempt show in the music he writes at this time. One of the songs he writes from 1906 is called Christ is Risen, but it's not what you think. Christ is risen. The title, Scott, sounds celebratory, but the words are anything but. The text translates roughly as, Christ is risen, they sing in the holy places, but I am sad. 
So much blood and so many tears are shed now in the world. This song of praise before the altar sounds like a mockery. If he were here among us now and could see the achievements of our glorious age, and if he heard Christ is risen, sung in the churches, he would weep the bitterest tears in agony at what we have done. Rachmaninoff's song, Christ is Risen. The whole song is under three minutes, strong, bitter words in such a short amount of time. Oh, it's a direct accusation of mankind. Guilty. Christ himself is ashamed of us, mocked by our singing that he has risen. It doesn't praise him. It only causes him agony. So Christ is Risen is one piece from this darker era of Rachmaninoff. Another piece from this time is a tone poem that, Scott, you think is a hidden treasure called Isle of the Dead, based on a painting by Arnold Buchlin, which depicts souls being taken to the Isle of the Dead in the afterlife. Yeah, it starts with a slow but unyielding rhythm. Here, let me show you at the piano. That's an oarsman steadily rowing his deceased cargo to the Isle of the Dead. eeriness of the painting and the idea of where do souls go, I think really spoke to a musical theme that Rachmaninoff loved, the Dies Irae. The Day of Wrath, the Latin chant that's often used as part of the Catholic Requiem Mass for the Dead. Yeah, it sounds like this. Dies Irae, Dies Ila. And there's more to it, but that's all that Rachmaninoff knew at the time. (laughs) So when this piece gets going, the... We hear a little bit of that in the oboe. Eventually, though, it becomes this beautiful brass chorale, but it's so dark. And what I think is so special about that one is you can hear Dies right? You hear that in the top voice, but the bottom voice is an exact mirror image of it Mm. in the opposite direction. And I can't help thinking it's almost like you can see death, the Dies Irae, reflected in the water. Near the end of the piece, just the second violins and the clarinets play this just the first few notes over and over again. But eventually there's this thump of pizzicato and harp. What's really cool about that is even the 
the pizzicato and harp are actually playing a slow version of the DAC array themselves. Hmm. See if you can hear that. Scott, you mentioned that Rachmaninoff loved this chant. Oh, he uses it all over the place. I mean, there are these hidden little snippets of it all over the place. Back in that first symphony, that opening theme, those opening notes. There it is. That's the DAC ray, right? <laughs> Even the second movement of his second symphony, when the horn plays. Leave out the pickup note and just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's been in there, but when we get to the Isle of the Dead, the floodgates open. And from here on out, it's going to play an important role in just about every single one of his major pieces. What was it about this theme, the Day of Wrath, the Dies that was so important to Rachmaninoff? Good question, and one he conspicuously avoided answering. But we have some clues. I'm sure as a composer, he loved it for its simplicity. I mean... Simple but distinctive. It allows him room to vary it like we heard in those other examples. So he's not repeating himself over and over again. We're like, oh, there goes Rachmaninoff writing the same music again. But it's really easily recognizable once you know what it is. Yeah, but there's got to be some sort of philosophical attraction to this concept of the Day of Wrath. Yeah, no doubt. Rachmaninoff, we know, was prone to depression. And got to say I have to think he wrestled with this depression through his music. And it seems throughout his life he had this growing obsession with death in general. In earlier pieces, the Dies Irae eventually morphs into beautiful romantic themes. But in Isle of the Dead, there's just one moment of relief, of transcendence. But even that is quickly tinged with melancholy. Composer Igor Stravinsky described Rachmaninoff as a six and a half foot scowl. scowl right? <laughs> Part of this gloom, it just has to be triggered by the fact that he's exiled himself from the growing anarchy in Russia. Yeah, we can't underscore enough just how much Rachmaninoff loved and really needed his homeland, Russia. But it's just not safe for him and his family to stay, so they moved to Dresden, Germany. And it's like the dread he feels about the growing chaos in his homeland gets poured into Isle of the Dead.
the conclusion of Rachmaninoff's tone poem, Isle of the Dead, that insistent, melancholy tone of this work extends into Rachmaninoff's next big piece, a twin sister, if you will. Yeah, the Rock Three, his third concerto, which he wrote for his first tour of the U.S. By now, it's 1908-1909. Rachmaninoff is pretty famous as a composer, a pianist, and a conductor, so he hires an American agent to book his first tour in the United States to premiere his new piano concerto. But it hasn't been written yet. Then, all of a sudden, his American agent dies, and Rachmaninoff thinks, great, I'm off the hook. Now I don't have to finish that darn concerto. Wait, 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 wait. So he <laughs> hires an agent to book a tour for him in the U.S., but then he doesn't want to go? That's Rachmaninoff. Remember back in episode four when he had just played at the London Phil and he promised to write them his second piano concerto? Yeah, right. That's when he went back to Russia and kind of blew it off. Yeah. When it comes to finishing pieces, whenever Rachmaninoff had doubts, and let's face it, Rachmaninoff had lots of doubts, he'd rather cancel than embarrass himself. But in this case, he's under contract with these orchestras, so he's obligated to do the tour. And what I find funny in this situation is that Rachmaninoff kind of justified going to the U.S. and doing the tour by knowing he can indulge in his new passion, cars. (laughs) Automobiles are still a pretty new thing, and Rachmaninoff wants one so bad. America, land of opportunity. (laughs) Right? This concerto is going to turn out to be a virtuosic powerhouse. It starts, however, with the simplest piano part you could possibly imagine. Opening section of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. Very simple idea, and Rachmaninoff even said it composed itself. I simply wanted to sing the melody on the piano as a singer would sing it. But it doesn't stay simple or easy to play for long. <laughs> Not at all. Almost immediately, the piano part launches into a quiet but fiery accompaniment, and the simple tune goes into the horn and violas. And if that weren't challenging enough, Rachmaninoff was pressed for time to complete it and had to practice the piano part on a silent keyboard he used while traveling. Like a paper keyboard, like a lot of us had when we were first learning to play? Well, it was a legit keyboard. It just wasn't attached to any strings, so no pitches, just clickety-clack, right? But just imagine how difficult it would be to learn such a challenging piece without actually hearing what you're playing. I mean, in this case, the piano part is so demanding, in fact, (laughs) that Rachmaninoff wrote an easier alternate version of the beginning of the big cadenza from the first movement.
And believe it or not, this is the easier this is version. Easy one, right? <laughs> so did he write this for pianists who just couldn't play the harder version? Well, yes, but it was also for Rachmaninoff himself. He wrote it for those evenings when he didn't feel at the peak of his form, so he would have a fallback just in case. That's how hard this is. This is where having those incredibly large hands really helps. Show us what you're talking about, Scott. Most pianists can safely reach an octave. And we can fill in a chord in between. So together, well, Rachmaninoff could go beyond that octave up and up and up to there. Wow. And he could play all these notes in between. So that initial octave... Most people use their pinky and thumb, so he can use his thumb to play that. Well, he's playing that that octave with his pinky and index finger. <laughs> but wait, I see you cheating. You're using both of your hands. Well, it's the only way I can do it. <laughs> but the difficulty of this piece never lets up for the pianist. Even the so-called slow movement, which in many concertos is a less demanding section for the pianist to show off their musicality instead, but gives them a chance to rest for a fast demanding finale. In this case, even the slow movement is full of challenging passages, gushing with these mournful themes that demand both musicality and physical stamina from the pianist. middle movement of Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. It's beautiful, but it is full of anguish and torment. Usually the second movement of a piano concerto, Scott, is the pretty movement, the lyrical, more feel-good movement. Yeah, in this case, Rachmaninoff never really goes there. There's a moment where it almost seems like he's about to break free, and one of those beautiful, lush themes going to come in, but then the piano turns it dark with this descending line, and we're just dragged back into despair. of this episode on Rachmaninoff has been about this darker side of Rachmaninoff as it shows in his music. What is going on, Scott? I mean, we know he's prone to depression, but there must be something more going on. Well, there must be, right? The challenge here is that because he's living so isolated in Dresden, he's away from all his friends, he's not writing letters, we don't know what he's thinking at this time. We do know from his past that he was constantly relying on something to inspire him. Hey, can you recommend a poem for me? Or do you have an idea for a composition? You know, he goes and sees this painting. But because he's so isolated at this time, we simply don't know what he's thinking. It's beautiful, yes, but it is full of anguish and 
torment. Yeah, I can't help but to hear this as a wartime composition. That mournful second movement goes straight into the battle music of the finale. There's simply no time for the pianist to rest before the Technicolor finale launches straight away. Like you said, Scott, it never lets up. And it carries you away, but it's so different than the sweeping beauty of the second piano concerto. What did audiences think about it since it is so different than the second piano concerto? Uh, very mixed reaction. <laughs> Rachmaninoff felt that the audiences didn't like it as much as the conductors and the musicians did. Well, that's a change because usually right. it's the audiences <laughs> that love his pieces and the critics who don't at all. Yeah, you know, in some ways, this piece... I think was written to win over the naysayers. It's so masterfully constructed and orchestrated that even critics of Rachmaninoff's other music have to admit that the hand of a master is in control here. Well, audiences of today have certainly warmed up to the third piano concerto, especially after it was featured in that movie Shine. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is because of the ending. What a climax. Rachmaninoff believed that every piece has one key moment and everything else in the piece needs to set up that moment. Through all the angst and turmoil throughout so much of this piece, by the time we get to the end of the third movement, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Rachmaninoff we've come to know and love. What a gorgeous climax, but he makes you wait for it. Yeah, this piece deserves all the love it's received. It's a monument to what's achievable in the genre. A fiendishly difficult piece that demands the greatest of virtuosos, both technically and artistically. But that big payoff is saved for the very end, and by the time you get there, you've earned it. And the fact that we had to wait over 40 minutes for it makes it all the more glorious. What an overwhelming sense of catharsis when we finally reach that moment. Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto is the grand finale of what we have been calling Rachmaninoff's Golden Decade. Rachmaninoff finishes it on his way to America, plays it in concerts all across the U.S., and the tour, Scott, was a success. No, in every way imaginable. In fact, he gave 26 performances in that season, 19 as a pianist, but also seven as a conductor. And he was so widely respected as a conductor that the Boston Symphony invited him to become their music director. Well, he could get a car with that position. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, however, gratuitous capitalism, or at least as he saw it, was something he came to hate about America. Mm. even said, these Americans and their business, the business they're always doing. He declined 
all offers in the United States and return to Russia despite the troubles in his homeland. So Rachmaninoff leaves the land of opportunity mostly because, like he said, he never felt yeah. right when he was away from his beloved Russia and his estate, Ivanovka, with its endless wheat fields and forests where he felt truly at home. Rachmaninoff returns to his homeland and to the core of who he was as a composer. Next time on the Great Composer series from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio, I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.